0: afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. So glad that we're going to be having this next couple of hours together. You know, God created a universe that was good and free from sin. How amazing was that? And then God created humanity so he could have a personal relationship with him. So Adam and Eve ended up sinning and and therefore brought evil and death into the world. And then evil just increased until there was only one family in which God found anything good. God sent uh, basically a big old flood to wipe out evil. But he delivered Noah and his family, along with all the animals in the ark. Then after the flood, humanity pretty much began to multiply and spread throughout the world. But God chose Abraham, through whom he would create a chosen people and eventually the promised Messiah. Of course, that chosen line was passed on To Abraham's son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. And as we've been going through Genesis, I have just been loving this study with David Wheaton. And as we study Genesis, we realize how incredibly relevant it is to today. And we're going to continue our discussion on Genesis with our special guest, David Wheaton. David, welcome
1: you, Bill. That was a really good summary of Genesis.
0: Well, you know, we've been at this for long enough that it's probably wise to <laughs> just recap every now and then, just to bring all the listeners up to speed. And I didn't, I didn't, I could have probably kept going, but um I figured I don't want to keep you on hold for very long.
1: Well, that, that's okay. I mean, it's it, this, this first book of the Bible, there is so much in this book. And incredibly, even though it happened 6,000 years ago about, uh, there's so much that's relevant in each of these stories of these these great biblical characters that are not only featured, by the way, in Genesis, but as we're going to find out today, uh, they're also mentioned many times in the New Testament as examples for believers today.
0: hmm So let's, uh, let's touch base with what we did last time. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, chapter 24, and that was the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah.
1: Right. So Isaac was the the promised son uh, that Abraham and his wife Sarah had to wait for decades for, and they doubted, and they didn't think it was going to happen, and God had promised the whole—he was the son of promise that there'd be land, there'd be seed, there'd be blessing, you know, through Abraham, and Abraham's the example of faith for believers of all time. He believed God and was reckoned unto him to righteousness. In other words, we're not saved by our works. Works are evidence of our True faith, not the means of, of gaining salvation. So there's so much in Abraham but they couldn't have the son they were way, way past childbearing age. Uh, and, and finally uh, they have they have Isaac, the son of promise, mm-hmm. and of course they're just so thrilled and God has brought to pass what he has promised for so many years. But then in, we see in Genesis four that now Isaac has, has grown up, and the, one of the key points from our last discussion, I actually just wrote down three. Uh, the first key point was that Abraham and Sarah were very, very intent on making sure that Isaac married someone who was of the same mind, the same faith. And they lived in the land of Canaan. They didn't own land, really, that. They didn't, you know, the Jews weren't in the land. They didn't own it. That was later in the conquest with Joshua. So this is before that. So there are lots of other uh Peoples and tribes and so forth living in that area who worship false gods. And Abraham and Sarah absolutely did not want Isaac to marry one of the women, uh, the girls from his own land, because they knew that if he married someone who didn't follow their same God, that there would be problems for Isaac. And they knew that Isaac was the son of the promise. And so, right there in Genesis 24, uh, you know, as Abraham's getting older, he's getting close to death, he tells his servant in, in Genesis 24, he said, please place your hand under my thigh. He's going to make him take an oath. Mm-hmm. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, who were the people you know around where they lived. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And his relatives had come from the land, the city of Ur, and they had trained... They had, um, they had been transported up to another place called Haran. So all his relatives lived, I think it's probably a couple hundred miles away, a long way back then that wasn't easy to get there. So he was telling his servant to go back to where he had grown up with his brothers, where his family was living, and take a wife from his relatives there uh, and then bring her back uh, down into Canaan. He didn't want Isaac to leave the land because there, that was where God had told him he must stay in the land of promise and and the point here the really the relevance for today is for Christians um we need to marry as 1 Corinthians 7:39 says marry in the lord uh in other words marry a fellow believer that's the, that's the positive assertion of that the negative is in, in 2 Corinthians 6 don't be bound together with unbelievers uh you know there's there's a spiritual bonding that takes place uh, more than anything else in, in marriage And Isaac or and Abraham and Sarah knew this. And so it was of their their greatest concern that who Isaac was going to marry. And of course there was this was this was an arranged marriage back then, but they wanted to make sure that he married someone in the Lord. So that that's one big thing we got from the chapter last time. I'll just give a real brief one, I'll just do one more. Was the rest of that chapter when the servant goes up to to find a, a wife for Isaac. Uh, he prays on the way uh, about God making this clear to him, how am I going to know which girl it is, and how am I going to know how to do this? And he asked very specifically that God would show him that the girl that comes out and offers to water himself and his camels, and and ask him, invites him back to the home, that this would be, well, this is exactly the way it happens. They go up there, and this this girl comes out, uh, and she does exactly as this servant had prayed, and the whole story is one of God's providence, and going hundreds of miles away, and and coming across this girl who who does exactly as he had prayed, and then her coming back uh, to the promised land of Canaan uh, with the servant and being introduced to Isaac. And it's an incredible love story, but it's really about being married in the Lord, and how important that is, and how God's providence is the way he ordains the circumstances of life, works things out.
0: Mm -hmm. Wonderful summary, David. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about Abraham, and how did he finish his race? Yeah, and
1: that's always a it's always a question. I think that we all should consider. You know, the, the race of life. Um, it's like a marathon. It's a long race. There's ups and downs. There are times that are good. There are times that are bad. And uh, you know, how do we finish the race? It's not how you start. It's it's really how you live and how you finish. And so, in Genesis 25, as we go to the new material for today, we see that toward the end of his life, this this great stalwart of the faith, Abraham, actually decides to, we were just talking about marrying in the Lord. Well, Abraham takes another wife. So now a third wife he's had. He's had Sarah, uh, he's had, but Sarah's died now. He's had Hagar, uh, which is the one that he married because Sarah wasn't having a child. So back then it was a custom to, to you know, marry your handmaid and have a child through her that would be really the child of your real wife. But that didn't work out when he had Ishmael. That was not going to be the son of the promise. And here in Genesis 25, we see him taking another wife named Keturah, and these last two wives, Hagar and Keturah, are the what would be the mothers of the progeny that came from Abraham. That would be today's Arabic people. I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty incredible. I mean, like, again, what's this? Four or five thousand years ago, and you have the father of. This is why the 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 Arab people and now the religion of Islam claim. Uh, Abraham as one of their, as their forefather, basically, because he was. Uh, Abraham not only was married to Sarah, from which the Jews and that those people came from, but also he was the father of Hagar and Keturah and their sons. And so, you know, the, the 12 princes of Ishmael came out of uh, Abraham and Hagar. And so th- this conflict, by the way, that happened way back then, because there was conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. I mean, we still see this conflict Today. So, from a negative standpoint, there was, I think, what I would consider a poor decision made uh, by Abraham at the end of his life. But then, yet again, we see God's grace when Abraham dies. He was 175 years old when he died, older than obviously we live today, uh, much shorter than the time before the flood, of course. And it says this about Abraham in in, uh, Genesis chapter 25 he breathed his last and died in a ripe old age an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. And interestingly, in verse 9, it says, then his sons Isaac and Ishmael, who previously had been at odds with each other, came together and they buried him in the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, who had pre -pre predeceased him. It came about after his death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. So I think it's really a good summary of often the way we live our lives. We strive to follow God, we do the best we can, but being fallible, sometimes we go wrong ways, but we see God's grace here, that Abraham was a man of faith. No doubt he had repented of his sin and was in a right relationship with God, and there was not only blessing at the end of Abraham's life, but there was blessing to his family as well, especially to his son Isaac.
0: Mm -hmm. David, one of the things I, I can think of so relevant to today that we can trust God to handle all the details of our lives. I mean, God can take any situation, whether it's hopeless or feeling desperate to us, you look at Abraham and Sarah being childless, and God can do amazing things if we trust and obey.
1: That's exactly right. We've been talking about the life of Abraham. I mean, just consider what, you know, the fact that he married wives he shouldn't have, or the, the story of when he went to go sacrifice his son Isaac, or the doubt over having Isaac in the first place and his nephew Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, th- this man had an unbelievable life. And yet through all these things and some bad decisions by Abraham and others and so forth, God is still working through that. And he is causing all things to work together for good, but to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And Abraham was a great lover of God. And even though he went some wrong directions like we all do, God caused it all to work together for good, and it didn't thwart God's plan of bringing blessing in his own son, Jesus Christ, through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob.
0: Mm-hmm. God always has and always will bring about a, a greater good if if we have faith in him and his sovereign plan for our life.
1: To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8, 28, what a a powerful summary yeah. of what God does in our in our lives that aren't always perfectly on the straight and narrow.
0: Yeah, all right David, I'm going to take a little short break, but when I come back I want to ask you uh, about Isaac and his father Abraham and I want to ask you how is there a similar story with those two? Be right back. David Wheaton, talking about Genesis, as we've been doing for months and months, loving it. So, David, uh, how is there a similar story with Isaac and his father, Abraham? Well,
1: oh, it, it's, it, it's amazing, you know, you know just in our regular lives, people know this, that you're part of a family, and you know, things that happen to fathers often, you know, it affects very deeply what happens to sons and, and, and the children and the grandchildren. There's mm-hmm. things repeat, repeat themselves, and it was no different with I, Abraham and then his son Isaac. And in Genesis 5, 25 we're talking about, uh, it starts to go into, you know, Abraham dies. We just talked about that. Then the, the story focuses now on his son, Isaac. And Isaac's wife, here's the first similarity, is barren. Just like Sarah, Abraham's wife was barren for a very, very long time, couldn't have any children. So was Rebecca. And so they're, they're, they're going through the same childlessness that uh, Isaac's father and mother went through. Uh, and they pray about it, Isaac prays about it, and finally conceives uh, not just one child, but twins. And this is now the beginning of the story of Jacob and Esau, or actually Esau and Jacob, because Esau is the firstborn, they're, 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 they're twins. And not only are, is it a similar story of Abraham uh, you know, being childless, like Isaac being childless, but now there's a brotherly conflict. Just like the, the sons of Abraham were in conflict with each other, of Ishmael and Isaac, now, the sons of, of uh, Isaac, uh, who are Esau and Jacob, are going to be in conflict with each other. So there's two similarities right there, just the way history repeats itself. And then there's a third problem here, uh, Bill, is that it says in Genesis 25:27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, verse 28, now Isaac, the father, loved Esau, because he had a taste for a wild game, but Rebecca, his wife, loved Jacob. Now it doesn't take too much discernment here to see where this is going. We have a, a Esau had a favorite child, and and so did Rebecca. And this is going—they've already there's going to be there's in other words, the conflict that's coming is very very obvious. <laughs> like what what is going to happen here? You, you and and the lesson for us today is parents need to be extremely careful about not choosing favorites among their children. And by the way, it's easy to say, oh, I don't have any favorites in my kids. And I love them all the same. But that's actually very hard to do because kids don't turn out the same way. And if we're, I think if we're all honest, you know, it's always easier to love the child who is well-behaved, who does what we want him or her to do. And, you know, is, is the one who, who's close to us rather than the one who's the rebel. Uh, and, and this is the case here with, with Jacob and Esau. You know, Isaac loved the outdoors, the fields. And so he loved Esau. And his mother loved Jacob because Jacob liked to stay around home and probably be in the kitchen and cook and do that sort of thing. So but with the lesson, I think, is for parents today is we need to take a lesson from this story and be very, very careful and be able to really be honest with ourselves as we evaluate how we interact with our, our children. If we have multiple children and that, yes, it's hard to treat children the same, especially when they treat us differently. But at least we need to try to extend the same amount of grace and forgiveness and focus on each of our children so it doesn't lead into the kind of the story that the story of Jacob and Esau is going to lead into.
0: Mm-hmm. David, is this an example of role modeling, or do you have any thoughts on the concept of the generational sin?
1: You mean like to the third and
0: fourth generation? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, potentially. Yeah, I, I think probably more just more simply even than that, um, I, I think it's just a case of, you know, we're flawed again. Yeah, right. And, and we, we tend to like those who like us and treat us well. And when children rebel or disobey, you know, that makes us angry. It makes us dislike them at certain times. We still love them, but we can dis, you know, dislike them and show favoritism, favoritism toward the one who kind of sticks around home. But we just need to be very, very careful of doing that, because that was one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that led to this huge conflict that's about to come up between Jacob and Esau. Yeah.
0: All right. So Esau trades his birthright to Jacob. Why is that so, so significant?
1: Yeah, you know, when we read this story in Genesis chapter 5, and most everyone's heard it, that, you know, Jacob sold his birthright for a, uh, you know, some pot, for a mess of pottage or, you know, lentil stew and so forth, you think, well, why is this so you know so significant? Some story buried back in the Old Testament It's actually uh, mentioned again in Hebrews chapter twelve. I'll read that in a second. And the reason is because the birthright was a very important honor and privilege afforded to the firstborn son at that particular time. I mean, this was meant to be. This was going to Esau as the even though they were twins. Esau was born first, and so you know for for Esau to go out uh, hunting as he did that day. And he came back and he was so hungry that when he came back into the kitchen and lo and behold, there is Jacob in the kitchen, probably with his mother, and Esau demands some food. Jacob says, okay, I'll give you some soup, some lentil stew, if you sell me your birthright. And you think, well, what person would ever do accept that deal? I mean, the birthright included not only huge physical uh, material possessions from your father, uh, but it was also a, a blessing was at stake. You get the greatest blessing of, of the family. And so we see in this chapter that Esau so easily gives away his his birthright, all that he had coming to him, just because he's hungry, coming home from a hunting trip one day. I mean, he, he, in other words, if you want to look at it a little more deeply, he sold something of eternal value for something of very little temporal value, a lentil stew, and what this means is that Esau was very physically motivated and focused rather than spiritually motivated or focused, and so this story is so important. It's The, the writer of Hebrews mentions it in the New Testament. It says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, again, Hebrews, New Testament here, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing of the firstborn, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought for it with tears. In other words, the lesson, the relevance for us today is how often do we seek things that kind of satisfy our physical needs instead of really pushing forward for our great, much greater spiritual needs? You know, our, our greatest spiritual need and desire should be to honor and obey God and serve Him and follow Him. That's the spiritual things, not the things we easily get distracted by, the physical things that come and go, like money or position or career, relationships, sex, these kind of temporal things we get easily distracted by. And the lesson here when in this particular story is that Esau was a physical man. He was a godless man. He was concerned about his physical, satisfying his physical needs, and not when he had this greater, much greater thing of spiritual significance, his birthright.
0: All right, uh, David, any uh, any last thoughts um, with Abraham and Isaac?
1: Yeah, well, we're going to come up to the story next, Bill, not today, because we don't have time, but the next story is going to be how this story of the birthright plays out, because this was done when they were younger, the boys were younger, he sold the birthright for the lentil stew, but as Isaac thinks he's going to die, now he's going to bless his children, and Isaac doesn't care, care the fact that you know, Esau has sold his birthright, he's going to bless his firstborn son, who's Esau. And Jacob and Rebekah know this, his mother know this, but they're going to devise this incredibly deceptive lying plot to make sure that Isaac, who's blind and can't see in his old age, he's going to make sure that Isaac is tricked into giving this this place of favor, a blessing status to the younger son Jacob, we're going to come to that story. Uh, but there's one more thing I want to conclude with today, because we'll do that next time about that, that, that blessing, is that there's another similarity to this story uh, with Abraham and, and, and Isaac. And Abraham was so intent, as we started out today, uh, in, in, who, in who Isaac would eventually marry. But it's the same thing now with Jacob and Rebekah, are, are, uh, or Isaac and Rebekah are just as intent in who his, his, their kids marry. So they have two sons, and the chapter ends like this. It says, when Esau, their firstborn, was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and he married another woman, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And this just goes back to the very first thing we discussed today, how marriage for Christian parents today, we should be so focused on helping our sons and daughters understand the first and most important principle of marriage, to marry in the Lord, because Esau didn't do that. He married some of the godless women of his area instead of marrying another woman who followed the same God of his parents, and this brought grief to his parents. And it's really kind of a sobering end to chapter 26 before we get into this this great deception in chapter 27 where Jacob deceives his father to get the firstborn blessing.
0: David, I'm sure there's a lot of heartbroken parents out there whose parent, whose children did not follow that counsel
1: yeah, there are, and it's it 's hard to go back on you know it's yeah. what, you know marriages should be for life, I know we can get divorced, but God hates divorce, the Bible says, mm-hmm. and even when we marry an unbeliever, God still doesn 't want us to get divorced there 's very, very few uh, biblical grounds for divorce, so it is such a major decision it 's a second most important decision in life after the decision to repent and follow Christ as Savior and Lord. And the Bible is emphasizing this right back in the first book and showing it through the stories of these grace men in the faith.
0: Yeah. David, I had a wonderful question come in from some listeners. On Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to, to address it today, but I will send you the question so we can talk about it in a couple of weeks. We'll look forward to that, Bill. Thanks, David. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Okay, how cool is this? I've got Jason Romano on our studio line. He's an Emmy award-winning producer and senior uh, manager at ESPN. He was, anyway. He created and produced uh, content for such shows as Sports Center, Monday Night Football, Mike and Mike in the Morning. Sunday NFL Countdown, College Game Day, an MLB All Star game, and many, many more. Jason, welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I need some personal counseling today. My twins just lost. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: I, it's been a, That's it's been it? a That's rough That's it? That's all you have for me? Your Minnesota twin. <laughs> I, I mean,. Let me pray for you, Father, yeah. We just pray for you. <laughs> It's a tough one, man. Yeah, the Twins have. I mean, if you're a Twins fan, I always say you are a legit fan because yeah. they have they have had a rough go of it for a long time.
0: Okay, work this one out for me. I, I heard some sports right. commentators uh, say that the Vikings are the best 0-3 team in the season of the season. Is that a good thing? Oof uh it's you're not the... a good thing when you're <laughs> oh and three <laughs> <laughs> but you're the best of the worst i don't know if i get that it doesn't feel good
2: yeah i don't know I, I don't know either i mean my my favorite team is the dallas cowboys and they're one and two yeah and they're in first place and i tell people listen they're one and two yeah but they're in first place yeah but they're one and two and they're pretty, <laughs>
0: pretty
2: close to being oh and three so it's hard to find the silver lining
0: <laughs> yeah what do you think about the cowboys this year are you optimistic
2: yeah, you know, it's weird. I'm I'm actually more of, it's it's I'm an optimist by nature, you know, uh, as my faith is so important to me and I'm positive and optimistic in that. But with sports, I'm more of the like, I don't know, I, I expect the worst with my teams, I guess. So <laughs> I do too. <laughs> Dallas, Dallas hasn't won a Super Bowl in 25 years, so am I optimistic? I mean, I think they're a pretty good team. Yeah. Their defense has a lot of issues, but I mean, I'm hopeful, but... In all honesty, they usually end up breaking my heart. So that's kind of what I'm preparing for. (laughs)
0: Well, your second book is now out. Very cool. The Uniform of Leadership. Uh, Lessons on True Success from My ESPN Life. I'd love to hear a story.
2: Yeah. So this book, the idea of it is, um, you know, I, I get asked a lot, what was it like to work at ESPN? You know, what was it like to be around, you know, some of the greats that you would watch on television, the heroes, people that I rooted for and watched as a kid, And it was great. So I I tried to put together those stories into this book, but I really wanted it to be more than just an entertainment type of book. I wanted it to be a a book that could apply, you could apply into your own life. And so that's where we really thought about leadership. And there was a ton of lessons on leadership that I learned from all the different people that I interacted with during my time at ESPN. And so that's what we tried to do is tell these stories in a way that would be Um, you know both entertaining but also applicable into your own life as you grow to be a leader and we're all leaders right I mean that's really what this is about is is all of us have an influence on someone in our lives whether it's through our job whether it's at home whether it's in church we are all called to be a leader because leadership is simply one thing it's influence and it's another thing it's serving and Mm -hmm. so we can all do that in, in our spheres of influence
0: so we, you were relatively happy at ESPN, and you just felt God called you away a to do something else.
2: I did. Yeah, it's funny because it's one of those things where I hit a crossroads probably around the age of 40. Uh, I'm 46, 46 right now, and I think about at 40 years old, do I want to be here for the rest of my life at ESPN, as, you know, for the rest of my career? And, you know, a lot of my flesh would say, yeah, of course, why not? What's mm-hmm. wrong with this? This is a dream, a dream job. But I just felt God really speaking in my spirit, No, not an audible voice or anything, but saying, listen, I, I want you to do more for me. Whatever you, that is, I want you to do more for me. And that really opened up sort of this, I don't know, my heart was opened up to think about the opportunity to do more for God. And if that meant leaving ESPN, I needed to be open to that. And that's where an opportunity came to kind of go into ministry with sports ministry, with Sports Spectrum, the company I work for now, and host a podcast and, and do a bunch of interviews and be a part of a, a media ministry if you will that tells the stories of sports and faith and I really felt like the lord was saying you know this is the sweet spot you know this is what I've been preparing for you for 20 years as a producer as somebody who knows how to do broadcasting but now you can do it for a greater purpose and so we've been doing this sports spectrum thing now for 3 years and it's been a real a real blessing to me and I feel like I'm I'm truly living out an even an in greater purpose than I was when I was at ESPN
0: I would I would agree, and I'm I'm standing up and cheering for you right now, Jason. Just so you know, <laughs> I mean, because when you look, I at, appreciate that when you look at some of these athletes that you've you've had a chance to talk to and be around, their God stories are way more interesting than their sports stories. Guys like Tony Dungy and Daryl Strawberry,
2: absolutely. And that's the thing. When I was at ESPN, and listen, ESPN, you're not being paid to tell the faith stories, but there's so many athletes and people in the world of sports whose faith is the number one thing in their lives and they never get asked about it. So if you're watching ESPN, of course, they're not going to ask an athlete about their faith. Maybe they answer, they work in their faith and the answer that they're, you know, that they're being asked or the question that they're being asked. But we get to ask that question and ask it openly and give them a platform and a place for them to talk about their faith, to tell their testimony, to tell their story. And the more I've been doing this now for three and a half years, the more I realize in this faith and sports sort of ministry that I'm in, that this is the most important thing in these people's lives, and they're so excited to talk about it. And we've been able to fortunately have this platform, and I'm so blessed to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, Jason, I would I would just love to hear uh, a story that you had from an interview or somebody that was uh, in, your, in your life because of your job at ESPN that really got your attention and kind of rocked your world
2: yeah you mentioned coach coach tony dungy i think that's the, the best story i can give because coach dungy was coming to espn about 10 years ago to promote his book the mentor leader which i believe was his second or third book that he wrote and you know my job at that time as a producer at ESPN was to book the talent that would come to our campus at espn in connecticut and go through a bunch of interviews on all the different shows so like you mentioned earlier sports center Mike and Mike in the Morning, First Take, Sports Nation, all of these shows, NFL Live, these guests would come to Bristol and I would put them through this ESPN day of interviews. And Coach Dungy comes one day, Mm -hmm. he's promoting his book, and I knew he's a Christian, so I'm thinking, this is going to be great. And Coach asked me a question that changed my life forever, literally a half hour into our day, because he found out I was a Christian, and he said, how do you live your faith out here at ESPN, Jason? Mm-hmm. And I was caught off guard. I'd never been asked that question. I didn't know how to answer it. And I honestly didn't think I could answer it. And very quickly, I was informed that, you know, by him and his assistant, Jessica, that, wait a minute, this is ministry right here at ESPN. I didn't have to leave or go into a ministry place, which I've since done, to live my life as a Christian in the workplace. And so Coach dungie really focuses my attention on my faith, and suddenly I, I realized This is the biggest takeaway that I went from being a producer at ESPN who happened to be a Christian to being a Christian who happened to be a producer at ESPN. (laughs) I love that. The order is important here, right? And for many years, I was always known as the producer at ESPN. But after that day with Coach Dungey, I got the order back in its proper place.
0: That's fantastic. Might that be Chapter Two of your book called "Bloom uh, Bloom Where You Are Planted"?
2: (laughs) That is it. Bloom where you're planted, and that's. I tried to save a little bit. So when people read the story, you know, they'll get a little more details in it. But that is exactly chapter two in the book is the Coach Dungy story. And it, it was such a powerful impact on my life because, like I said, it changed how I went about my job, both at ESPN and even now in sports ministry with Sports Spectrum and how I approach my my job, whatever it is, whether it's ministry. I'm a follower of Christ first who happens to be. Whatever. Mm-hmm. A father, a husband, a dad, uh, you know, a brother, a producer, and, uh, you know, a podcast host. My faith has to be at the center of who I am and the number one thing in my life.
0: Yeah, Jason, just talk about the power of asking questions, too. Mm,
2: I love that, and I'm so glad you asked that, because my wife yells at me sometimes. She's <laughs> like, you're so curious. You just you have so many questions, and you want to know about people, and you want to know about, you know, what what's going on. And she calls it nosy, uh, <laughs> but I call it curious, Right, just my line. But I think it's a, it's a powerful thing because when you ask somebody about them, A, it makes them feel important, like they, that they matter, that they have purpose, and B, it gives them a platform and a chance to tell their story. And we all have stories. And I always say that if, if we have a story that we know can help or impact one person, then we should tell it. And sometimes we don't all have this big radio or podcast or a large platform But again, it's not about the size of the platform. It's about the story and the purpose behind the story and the impact that it can make. And if it's one person, it's worth telling. And I love asking questions and love talking to people. And I'm grateful that I get to do it now for a job with Sports Spectrum. And again, when we get to ask these questions specifically about people's faith in the world of sports, they light up and they want to share those stories.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think when you see athletes doing this celebratory, um, giving what we think is God the, the the glory? You know, we we don't always know for sure what their thoughts are, but uh, what is your what is your reaction to that?
2: You know, I'm okay with it. I think what the way you described it as a question is actually probably the way that we should all approach it. It's it, it's great but maybe they're pointing to the sky because it's somebody that they're honoring who has passed on. So yeah. we have to remember it might not be God. That it might they're not honoring, be God. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. And so I think we just need to take that with a grain of salt. Um, I think let's talk to the player after the game or let's hear from them and see maybe who they were honoring, but I don't have a problem with it. I mean, whatever can help you motivate you if you're pointing to the sky because you're remembering your mom or your dad or somebody that might've passed on or something, I think that's certainly acceptable and fine. And if it's God that you're honoring, too, and I've seen many players who I know are Christians, who I, I know love Jesus, who when they celebrate, they point to the sky or they give praise or whatever, that's great, too. You know, I, I think it's it's to each their own in that respect, but just remembering that even though they're pointing to the sky, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're thanking God.
0: Mm-hmm. In, your, in your book, you talk about the, um, the, the wearing the uniform. Uh, I think that's got a wonderful application uh, for all of us.
2: Yeah. Each of us wake up every day and we have a choice to make, right? We have a choice. Are we going to, we're wearing this metaphorical uniform. We're not necessarily putting it on, but we're, we're thinking about every day who we're going to serve first. Right. And, mm-hmm. and in a, in sports terms, you have a name on the front of the Jersey, which is usually the team and the name on the back of the Jersey, which is usually the name of the athlete. And for us, every time we wake up every day, we have to make a choice. Are we going to serve the team, you know, the person on the front of the Jersey or are we going to serve first the name on the back of the jersey in a lot of cases for me i screwed that up and i would think about jason first and i was so focused on me and i and my achievement and climbing the corporate ladder that i would forget about my teammates or the people i'm there to serve every day and in essence forgetting about god you know i look at it as sort of an i am third model god first others second ourselves third and when we wake up every day that's what the uniform of leadership is when you wear it properly, as I like to say, is seeking God first, making sure you're serving others second, and then taking care of yourself third. You know, Jesus came and said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not love your neighbor and not yourself. So I think it's important to keep keep us in this in the picture here to take care of ourselves, but the order, again, is important. Wearing that uniform of leadership is Wearing that uniform properly, where it's God first, others second, and ourselves
0: third. Mm -hmm. Jason, because you spent a lot of time at ESPN in Connecticut, did you get a chance to spend a lot of the times at games and events?
2: I did not as many as you would think initially, but I I will say the last three or four years, I got to go to a lot of events. Okay, Uh, you know when I worked on a show called Mike and Mike in the Morning, my last year. That show, uh, I went on the road with them pretty much the entire year. Every, every remote that they did on the road, I was there. So, you know, we were at the NBA Finals and College Football Championship and the World Series. And the NBA Finals uh, was the year that LeBron and, and Stephen Curry and their Warriors and the Cavs were playing. So I got to see some amazing events and kind of felt cheated like the last 15 years. I didn't get to do a lot of this. And uh, it was really neat, though. And uh, got, getting to go on the road is is a treat. I tell people it's a privilege to even work at ESPN. But when you can go on the road and attend events as an ESPN employee, and those perks that you get—being able to stand on the court, right. you know, before the game—and you know, not necessarily great tickets, but you get those press passes and the opportunity to kind of have access that other people don't have—it's it's it's awesome. It
0: yeah. really is. So when we talk about the the power of community you take something as powerful as teammates who have a common goal and a mm-hmm. and a passion together I mean isn't that something we want to replicate in our Christian life we want to uh join with a lot of other like minds and do something important and significant in other words the oh, great commission
2: Absolutely Absolutely listen I mean we are wired for community you know my brother actually once called it common unity. Community is that word, common unity, which is we all find unity in the body of Christ and a common goal or a common, you know, uh, purpose, which is to serve God and to serve Christ. So there is no doubt I wouldn't be where I am today as a follower of Christ, which, you know, I've been a, a follower of Christ now for 19 years. I was 27 when I became a Christian, and I could never have done this Christian life alone. I mean if I did I, I would I would have spiraled out of control and probably ran into way more way too way too many walls if you want to know the truth. But because I had those people around me to disciple me, to keep me accountable, to walk with me in, in situations that are, are good, but some of them are not so good either, you just it's so important to have community. You know, we are a part of a life group at the church I attend here in Connecticut and you know, that sort of mini church, small church of 10 to 12 people that you can just do life with, it's invaluable. It yeah. really is. And so community is so important to me. Obviously, it's important, I think, in our, in our work. You know, we can't do or accomplish a lot of things in our jobs alone, uh, but even more in our faith, we can't do anything alone. We, we obviously need Christ first, but we need those people who follow Christ to be with us and to learn and to grow and to just be a part of this because it's, it's hard to do this thing alone.
0: Yeah. My awesome guest is Jason Romano. He's written a book called The Uniform of Leadership Lessons on True Success from My ESPN Life. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back with Jason. Back with Jason Romano, a couple of books. The latest one is "The Uniform of Leadership: Lessons on True Success from My ESPN Life." One of my uh, regular listeners, uh, Jason Terry, said I'm I'm trying to feel some sympathy for Jason over his Cowboys, but he's disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's disappointed they haven't won a Super Bowl in 25 years. Uh, he does. Does he know he's talking to uh, fans of a Vikings franchise that have never won a Super Bowl? <laughs>
2: That's true Bill, I guess I didn't think about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. All right, let's go back to some leadership. This is uh this is something you have to kind of do every day, isn't it?
2: It is. It's a daily. It's it's almost like the way that we approach our walk with Christ, right? Like every day we have to be intentional in our relationship with the Lord. You know, we have to prioritize him. We have to be disciplined. Um, we have to sacrifice all of those things that you hear, you know, when you're in the church, it's very similar with our leadership ability. It's a daily discipline. It's something that, you know, if we let, uh, you know, if we get so focused on the end goal, we miss the journey and we're focused on achievement and success that we miss the daily opportunities to serve and to love. And, you know, I, I call it the slow drift, you know, in, 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 uh, In faith, if we're not careful, we can slowly drift away. It's usually not a straight, direct fall in people who walk away from Christ. It's usually that slow drift Mm -hmm. of people just kind of not going to church anymore. Eh, Maybe I'll just miss this week, maybe miss next week, and it slowly drifts away. I believe leadership is very similar, that if if we're not focused on people and others and waking up every day, like I said, putting that uniform on properly, having our hands out to See how we can serve others, we'll slowly drift into this me first you know focus on success and achievement in this world, and that's where it can get dangerous.
0: you notice how you never seem to slow drift into holiness
2: <laughs> that's so true that's a great point it's it's so true. I've not heard of that, but that's a it's it's almost like uh yeah, you're not slowly drifting into it it's literally has to be this intentional uh, act that you make every day, right? Dying of yourself, seeking, you know, denying yourself, seeking Jesus, you know, taking up your cross and following him. It's, it's an intentional thing. Yeah. It's not
0: walking (laughs) in the light, walking in the light. Uh, Jason, talk about just how important it is to uh, understand what your sphere of influence is and then to be aware.
1: Yeah,
2: to be aware. I think a lot of us, we, like I was saying earlier, you know, we all have a story to tell and we all are leaders, whether we, want to think we're leaders or not, we really all are because leadership is influence. And I think it's important to understand what our influence is. Some of us might have a very large platform like these athletes that I talk to and have thousands upon thousands, if not millions of followers on social media platforms. But that just because you don't have that doesn't mean that you can't make an impact or have an influence right where you are. And so for you or me, It starts at the house. You know, for me, I'm a dad and I'm a husband. So my first line of defense is my wife and my daughter. And the first place I got to be a great leader is to them. And what is being a great leader? Well, in a lot of ways, it's being available and serving and understanding my place and my role here with them. And my greatest responsibility as a leader is my daughter. I I really believe that. And, you know, it starts with her. And so I could be the best leader I can be at ESPN or at Sports Spectrum or. As an author or anything, but if I'm failing at home, then I I'm not doing it properly. I'm I'm messing up. I'm missing the point. So I think it's important to look at our influence in all spheres of our life, not just in our jobs, but it, literally at our homes. I've seen, unfortunately, way too many people at ESPN who were workaholics who who would work 12, 15 hour days and every day and be so focused on their job. And listen, I respect the heck out of people who can do that. But in off, often in cases, their marriages were crumbling or, you know, their, their relationships with their kids just weren't there. And uh, then I think about asking the question, well, was it worth it, you know, that you climbed the corporate ladder and you were always working hard to, to provide and to take care of your family? But at the same time, you were neglecting because, you know, you weren't around or you weren't there. And so and I know that's hard for a lot of people because, you know, our jobs are, you know, can consume us. But we have to remember our priorities and our influence in terms of our relationship with God, but then it really starts with our family and then understanding the influence that we have when we walk out of the door every day.
0: That's awesome. Jason, I assume you don't have to be a sports junkie to like your book.
2: <laughs> in fact, you do not, and that's the goal. The goal is to write this for people who would have no interest in sports just as much as those who would like sports. Now listen, if you love sports, it'll probably resonate a little bit better, but you don't have to know anything about sports, or like, In fact, I I always joke. My mom loves the book, and she doesn't care about sports. And uh, and I've had some people in church that were, you know, funny. And, you know, they're like, listen, I don't care about sports. I don't know know about sports. I don't watch sports. But I read your book, and it helps me because I realize that, you know, I have an influence, and as a as a leader, I can be a better person and a better leader whether or not I like sports or not. And so, yes, that that's the goal. That's definitely the goal.
0: Mm-hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left, Jason, and I, I want to stay focused on your new book on leadership, but I also want to mention that the first book you wrote, it was an amazing uh, book on learning to forgive and yeah. uh, moving forward when those we uh, love hurt us. Um, mm-hmm. I would love for you to just give our listeners a little um, taste of that.
2: Yeah, so two years ago I released my first book, and, like you said, it's about forgiveness. It's called Live to Forgive. And um, it's the story of my relationship with my alcoholic father, which was a broken and very confusing relationship for 40 years. And, uh, you know, my dad did a lot of hurting, uh, some of it intentionally, some of it not, to his family. And uh, I had a process of learning to forgive my father uh, after all the pain that he had caused, not only myself. Um, you know, abusive in terms of being verbally abusive, never physically abusive, but those wounds and those scars stuck for a long time, uh, and it was hard to forgive, but as I grew in my my walk with the Lord and uh, understood, again, you talked about platform and sharing your story, I shared this story once about my dad and about forgiving him, and somebody came up to me and said, listen, you just told my story, thank you so wow. much for sharing that, and I realized, oh my gosh, like my little forgiveness story with my father, as small as i felt like it was, could help someone else. And so that led to eventually writing this book, and uh, that's what it's been the last couple of years, is really going through this journey. That's what forgiveness is, right? Even though God commands us to forgive every single time, for so many of us, it's a process, it's a journey, and uh, it's something that, again, we have to work on every single day.
0: Jason, it's so encouraging, and I would love for you just to re- remind our listeners how important it is to tell your story.
2: So important. I mean, listen, a lot of people are introverts or quiet and they don't feel like their story matters or they they have the confidence, but it is so important because something that you've done, if it can help someone else, if it can influence someone else, if it can encourage someone else, no matter what their age are, maybe it's a kid that you've gone through a difficult situation when you were a kid. Man, tell your story because it can really help people. And listen, if it's the greatest story that God has worked in your life and you've accepted Christ and he's done a work in your life, in some ways we're commanded to tell that story. And so I would encourage people, man, speak up, share your story. You know, I'm not telling everybody to share everything that they've ever been through in their life, but formulate and really think about your testimony and your story and share it because it's powerful. Words, stories are powerful and it can really, if it can help someone else. You know, we have a responsibility to share those.
0: Mm-hmm. Of all your time in sports, Jason, uh, Jason, what athlete were you most glad to meet?
2: Oh, that's an easy one, Daryl Strawberry. You mentioned his name <laughs> earlier before yeah. the break, and I'm a I'm a diehard New York Mets fan. So okay. Speaking of suffering, um, I'm a Mets fan, and they haven't won anything in a long time either. In fact,
0: <laughs> the Twins
2: have won a World Series that's more true. recently than the Mets. That's true. Just telling you the truth, Bill. I d- I true. get it. I appreciate so, it. <laughs> But Daryl was my childhood hero, and uh, getting to meet him, getting to spend a day with him at ESPN, but then getting to stay friends with him,
0: yes, and
2: really grow in a, a relationship. You know, through Christ, he wrote the forward to my first book. He endorsed the second book. Wow. And he's a really good friend now, and that's so weird to say. That is so but weird to no say. Doubt, Darryl, yeah, uh, <laughs> but Daryl Strawberry, my childhood hero. There's no doubt that was a great day.
0: Very cool, Jason. Thanks for doing the show. Really nice to meet you.
2: Bill, great to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much.
0: Jason Romano has been my guest. His book is The Uniform of Leadership Lessons on True Success from My ESPN Life. We'll take a little break. We'll be back with our Salvation Series. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.